0: Bonjour, from Montreal. (laughs) Thank you for having me.
1: And welcome to hide and Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host Patty Ryan, and with me is Justin Almazan, who is a freelance violist who is pursuing doctoral studies in viola performance at McGill University in Montreal. He has performed with Seattle Symphony, Vancouver Symphony, the Montreal Symphony, as well as chamber performances with the Milton String Quartet and his current group Per Se Quartet. He is also a member of the Polaris Orchestra that past guest Nate Taylor and Gabrielle Glass founded to increase diversity representation in an orchestral setting. And we'll be talking about his doctoral work, which includes the intersections of language and musical learning, the contribution of American indigenous peoples to Western classical music, and increasing access to classical music education to underserved communities through outreach and pedagogy. Welcome, Justin. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah,
1: of course. So naturally, like many guests, I've Mm -hmm. asked Gabby to introduce me to many of her friends, and you are included. And I've been told that you guys met through the Sphinx organization. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
0: Well, Actually, Gabby and I, we went to school together in Cleveland at the Cleveland Institute. So that's where we initially met and that's where we became friends. And since then, we've both taken part in the Sphinx Orchestral Partner Auditions, sort of like an excerpt training program. That's how we got to really connect on our own different paths in terms of encouraging and fostering and inviting diversity in general and performances, because in different ways, but we've experienced how it can negatively impact classical music and individual musicians lives so I want to thank Gabby if she's listening for inviting me to talk and I'm so glad that there's this platform that you have to, oh, to invite you. musicians to speak well, yeah, about important w- things
1: that was my intent I suppose and thank you for hmm. of course joining me so to turn the corner a little bit can you tell me your most insane I guess musician story?
0: yeah there are always surprises in music I mean I guess outside of performance when I did a tour with the Milton String Quartet to Italy we got stuck in Istanbul for a night it was the first time that I was really outside of the west and this isn't really a musical experience other than it was on the way to important musical performances in Italy but I have to be honest I was afraid because when we got off at the airport to go to our hotels there were people with machine guns uh, which I had never seen before and another sort of I guess culture shock for me was to see the big pictures of Erdogan and all the Turkish flags but despite you know it being a culture shock we stopped through one of the Turkish bazaars and actually the cloth that I used to wrap my viola in is a silk oriental cloth from there and so I always keep that I don't know let's call it a mishap or unplanned detour it has stuck with me since then
1: oh that's so awesome it obviously wasn't designed to be a viola no it's just
0: a square floral silk textile but it's a a viola case yes very pretty piece of cloth cares for my viola (laughs)
1: hugs it and keeps it warm
0: exactly
1: Can you tell me about Bog? My my
0: dog, yes, I I told you about that. His name is Bug. Bug. pit Pitbull. Actually, my I have a twin brother named Jeremy, and he sort of just brought him home one day about eight years ago. And this is my home in Seattle where I grew up. But he's not the first pit bull that I had. As a child, we had another pit bull named Panda. So I (laughs) and between them, we had many cats. So we're sort of all over in terms of the animals. Yes, exactly. And they're either strays or somehow they just wind up in the home yeah i mean we're pet lovers or or animal they're, they're drawn to us yeah yeah somehow whether Absolutely. we want them or not we end up loving <laughs> yeah. them all but
1: yeah also pit bulls get such a bad rap sometimes but they're such the sweetest dogs like yeah i love all animals they're they're, as well. they're
0: illegal here in montreal or at least they were when i first arrived i think maybe wow. the law has changed it was because i think there was an attack and i think somebody had died as a result of pit bull but i mean like that's one incident and pit bulls naturally i think are actually quite the opposite of aggressive i mean, I mean, they're strong and they, you know, sometimes if right. they lunge at you out of love or like, right. you know, crawl over you on the couch, they're not always the lightest, but they are full of love and I think a little bit goofy, honestly. Yes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Naturally.
1: Yeah. All right. Are you ready for some Spitfire questions?
0: I hope so.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mahler or Bruckner? Bruckner. C or Ravel? Ravel. Oh, okay. I know that one's a tough <laughs> one. <laughs> Cats or Dogs.
0: Uh, did you plan this? I I mean, yes, I guess, but... Uh, I I can't. That's okay. I also couldn't. I can't can't either. I love both. We'll cut this out of the interview.
1: (laughs) Appetizer or dessert?
0: Ooh, I think appetizer.
1: Sparkling or still water?
0: Sparkling. Not not in terms of frequency, but in terms of excitement. I feel something about sparkling water. That makes sense.
1: Yes, it does. (laughs) Fan favorite question, alternate universe musical instrument?
0: I'll give you two options. Honestly, harpsichord. I think that, like Pitbulls, it has, let's call it a bad rap, or that it can't really do much, but I've heard some recordings and have worked with some great harpsichordists and I think that there's a lot to the instrument and I think that it's just not explored because it's ancient music. <laughs> mm. So, harpsichord or tenor. Vocalist. It's my favorite voice type and some of my favorite musicians of all time, let's say Fritz Funderlich, among others, but I love of the voice type it's something that i try to emulate a lot on my own instrument yes that being said i had to choose an instrument in elementary school which is how i started and actually i don't know where i came up with this list but i put violin first and clarinet second and viola third and i think it was one of the only people in my class to put viola on the list so i ended Ugh. up playing viola so another way to answer your alternate <laughs> universe question i is could violin I and have, clarinet? yes i may have ended up playing the violin which i don't think i would have enjoyed as much or the clarinet you know it's beautiful instrument, but I don't know if I would connect with it in the same way that I have with the viola.
1: I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly, yeah, you're in the right instrument.
0: <laughs> I think so. It was meant to be.
1: Yeah. <laughs> early bird or night owl?
0: As I've made my way through my 20s, I gradually became more of an early bird.
1: Pandemic guilty pleasure?
0: Netflix and Uber Eats. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I get you. <laughs> yes.
0: I might, again, I might later ask you to cut that out because... <laughs> I don't know, but but yes.
1: Okay. (laughs) Do you want to offer an alternative answer?
0: halfway through the pandemic so i went from uber eats i guess to running (laughs) So, Uh so opposite things i mean it just sort of happened i guess i did something different but wanted to make a change somehow in my brain chemistry but like actually i have taken up running and actually here in montreal i live very close to mount royal it's about a five minute walk to the entry point of the bottom of the mountain from where i am so i take small hikes and it takes about 20 minutes to get to the top so i've learned to really love that and find peace in doing that and also i've adopted a lot of plants from people who moved out of my building about a dozen plants to take care of and that has also given me a lot of peace and one or two of them may have died and I feel bad about that but yeah <laughs> these are some of the things that have helped me cope
1: nice I love like being a plant mom or yeah what, parent or, dad. Yeah. yeah whatever you want <laughs> gotta go yeah. yeah exactly yeah that's awesome and also like hikes are always just so I feel like whenever I ascend a mountain it's always a test of one's will and what I don't know there's just like so much internal dialogue and yeah internal like proving to oneself and mm-hmm. I don't know. It's such a mental state that for you... For sure, yes. It's very I, spiritual, I, I find. In
0: a way, yes. I think yeah. you can. one can easily describe it that way and it's been great for moderating mental health in general yeah. and if you can call it spiritual health as well. Well, getting fresh health.
1: perspectives too. Yes, of like, exactly. like getting from a bottom place to a top and yes. down again. Just like getting that perspective difference, yeah. Yes. Anyway, just metaphorically speaking. Yes, exactly. Favorite professor shout out?
0: I guess it would have to be my current viola professor who's going to see me for the next 3 or 4 years for my doctorate which is Andre Hua who I first met actually a long time ago in when I was studying in LA at the Colburn School and he was there giving string master classes so that's where I first met him and it's why I started pursuing grad school here in Montreal he's also one of the world premier string quartet coaches and so he's mentored both of the quartets that I've been a part of it's taught me a lot and I'm grateful that he is not sick of me yet and looking forward to working with him on viola and string quartet and everything else that our professors have to teach us you know as humans because it's Mm -hmm. the older I get the more I realize the problems that I must have caused my earlier teachers that they just have to deal with because you know when you're teaching people how to learn and you're involved with so much of their progress it's much more than the technique right and Mm -hmm. you know they kind of have to teach you how to how to mature on your own and if they are incapable of doing that you know not all teachers can do that then it's something that the student has to you have to learn from for yourself as well but yeah so i I will give a shout out to him and then also my very first viola teacher who kind of scooped me up and is the reason why i'm playing viola and her her name is dr cynthia Morrow. she's why i'm here i say that doing music and loving it as best i can throughout the pandemic thriving so
1: yeah and i think i've said this in the past too but those pinnacle teachers they often don't get the recognition that they deserve
0: for sure i mean they do
1: but not in the scope of our classical music yeah i mean gods or whatever you want to call it
0: it's there's a lot of very human Inter- interaction that goes on it's not just like oh they are these godly pedagogues that are going to be immortalized after they're gone you know and they mm-hmm. have this tradition it's it's more than that there's many many moments and hours of connecting as humans and teaching and so as you said the pinnacle the pillar teachers for me they happen to be my first and my current but i know that all the musicians whether they're still in music or not have these whether it could be just one good or bad and it might not be their first or their last but teachers right. who have really solidified their purpose in music So thank you to all of the teachers who have. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to say that it's, yeah.
1: Amen. I say the same thing. (laughs) Most inspired musical hero of any genre?
0: In the non-classical genre, maybe Freddie Mercury. And classical, oh, that's hard. I'll mention again Fritz Wunderlich as the great German tenor who died very young. Okay. Yeah.
1: Both are excellent examples of <laughs> amazing vocal performance. Yeah, I, I didn't In even think... In very different <laughs> spectrums. I didn't even
0: think of, of that, but...
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most transformative performance experience?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that's a difficult question. If I had more time, maybe the answer would be different. But I, I think that my last major performance before the pandemic hit was with... Kim Kashkashian who played the viola Dvorak viola quintet and E-flat major among the uh, other musicians were Axel Strauss who I think you, you know from San Francisco hey, shout out Conservatory Axel. and it was an intense three-day experience and I think it does hold particular significance because it was my last before we started getting all of the news that everything was shutting down and performances right. were being cancelled among of course being able to play with Kim Kashkashian who's a living a legend beast. herself you know I yeah, won't even say that. a viola but as a musician to have have had that privilege and to have that been my last great privilege and I've done some things throughout the pandemic but those are all sort of under the cloud let's call it or the shadow of the pandemic and it's significant for me just because of the timing and on top of who I was working with and it's a gorgeous piece for actually both (laughs) viola parts and playing second viola being in the middle of all of that I still have flashbacks to what a pleasure it was to have a full audience um, to be playing with such amazing musicians to hear people will come up afterwards and tell me how much they appreciated it. I won't forget that performance for many reasons.
1: For sure. Desert Island piece of any genre?
0: Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante, K364 oh. for violin and viola.
1: Yeah, I mean, mm. that, what a wonderful piece of music too. Mm. Great choice. Okay, you're done with the Spitfire questions. Okay. Congratulations.
0: Now I can relax. If I had perfect pitch, I would be able to tell you what key that was, but I can't. It's C major. Okay. Okay.
1: I do have perfect pitch. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Anyway, fun fact. All right, Justin, can you walk me through your musical origin story? Well, you you started to with some Spitfire. Right. Yeah. But, you know, essentially, how did you start finding the viola? When did you decide that that was going to be your life's calling and your career? And mm-hmm. walk me through the steps of where you are today.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the first time that I laid eyes on string instruments, it was probably in second grade, so maybe seven. It was at an assembly, and we were watching the elementary school string orchestra play Under the Sea from Little uh-huh. Mermaid and I just thought it was so cool for lack of a better word but I was so fascinated by the fact that there were these curvy wooden boxes with a stick and they were making music that I could recognize. So that was the first time that I learned about classical music because it was not in my house growing up and so when I was in fifth grade that's when I finally got to choose an instrument and I think I told you before I I listed viola as third on my choices and no one else put the violas on their list so I ended up playing viola. I think I secretly wanted to play the viola, but everyone else was I think choosing violin and, or clarinet and it yeah. happened that I got put on viola. So for about I don't know, from the age of 10 to 13, I was just playing in first in my elementary school orchestra and then in my middle school orchestra. Not studying privately but just playing in those settings and I started doing youth symphony auditions and my first teacher she contacted me and she said that I have heard through Bellevue is the city that I grew up in I heard through the executive director of the Bellevue Symphony that you don't have a private teacher. Would you like to start studying viola? and I said yes not knowing what that would mean and so from 13 going on 14 is which in the classical music world is pretty late to start taking private lessons but that's when I started and that was my last year of middle school and she didn't charge me and you know this whole time oh, this yeah. throughout this whole initial period of learning the instruments I had no concept of that most people they find out about their instruments you know very young mm-hmm. and oftentimes they have family members who play instruments of some sort and that's how they get it introduced to it I sort of thought that in the world you get to a certain age and then you get to choose your instrument because that's what my experience was so yeah I started studying in my early teen years initially I wanted to quit because I wasn't used to someone criticizing me one-on-one so intensely so that was also right. a bit of a shock because you know in the school orchestras the local youth orchestras I got various clues or believed various clues that you know I was one of the better ones you know I was progressing right. making the next level of use. Symphony, getting like honors orchestra, <laughs> and like, did and it seem easy or something seemed, like that? It seemed that? easy compared to other people that I was around. So private lessons initially, because I came to them after years of playing and being already starting to form myself, it was odd. So, so I did want to quit, and it was my mom who encouraged me to keep going. She was always quite, you know, hands off with my own decisions. So I mean, if, if I had quit, I don't think she would have been mad. But she definitely made me question. Do well, you actually want to? Yeah. You want to give this up. And I think she also realized from not even just a monetary standpoint, because she wouldn't, ha- she was not able to afford any kind of private instruction. And I had no concept of the amount of resources that it takes from an early age, whether it's your parents' money or scholarship from an institution. You know, it takes so much resources in the lifetime of a, mu- of a musician. I wonder if there's a figure for the average cost that it takes by the time someone is done with their formal education. And you could even argue that we continue learning after that. And there's really no end ed- education you know like so i think she had a concept that there was something very valuable and something great that could come from continuing my lesson so i did and eventually this teacher who i mentioned at the beginning of our session here she was a new england conservatory graduate but she also after that went on and became a doctor of psychology so i had a really interesting musical upbringing she was my mm-hmm. first private teacher and you know she was very honest about viola playing things which as i said were a shock because i wasn't used to being torn apart And to be able to be self-critical But she told me very adult truths that I still keep today Everything from being careful And this, you know, this is before I really was able to digest And understand this information But kind of about reputation Mm -hmm. in the classical music industry Like very early on, she said, you know, you want to do your best And you want to be careful about what you say And who hears you say it Among so many other things, you know She was just one of the most wise and generous And tough people that I have met in my life
1: Yeah, so I guess when did you decide that you wanted to... Because you said you even thought about quitting because of the sudden criticism. Right. Yeah, when did you decide that, like, no, I wanted to go to CIM, I assume, or visit Colburn first? So
0: it was going back to high school. So for the first few years of high school, I I was like, okay, I'll do the lessons. And I improved a lot, started doing competitions, started, you know, doing well. Mm. But still, I was very focused on school and doing IBAP and thought that I would want to go to some, like, Ivy League or something. I'm not sure what. But i guess halfway through my junior year i was going through a number of like difficult things in my home situation and my schooling suffered a bit but my viola playing and lessons and my lessons with my teacher were still very constant and helped me to or at least were sorry for the pun instrumental it's i didn't plan this out <laughs> in helping me cope in getting through high school and there was an evening where my teacher was like i've taught a lot of students over the years some go on to college and some don't to study music that is and she said i think that i can't imagine you not at least mm. trying and yeah, yeah yeah and it was just like very honest truth like this is something i think that you are realizing that you're meant to do this so i started realizing that myself and then i started at eastman i was actually at eastman oh. for two years and then i transferred to colburn it wasn't quite a good fit and so th- this is where i started questioning like what my teacher had initially told me because you know she's like you're, you're meant to do this and suddenly I, I through my experiences in conservatory life it was just a difficult adjustment as well as it was when i started taking private lessons but in a different way you know i was, I was first time away from home and these were competitive in- environments and yeah in a lot of ways i don't think i was ready. So I took a year off trying to decide what else could I do? What else mm-hmm. should I do? Should I continue to do this? But eventually I found my way back. I went to a summer festival, the Sarasota Music Festival mm-hmm. and I met another teacher there Robert Fernan. So then I went back to CIM to study with him and Miss Ramsey. And so it was a new chapter in my life I guess and then right when I got there I got seriously injured. So that oh, set no. me back for the next few years What kind CIM. of injury?
1: Was it tendonitis or was it, it... was. I
0: think it was a mix of tendonitis and it started in the forearm mm-hmm. and then it, i found ways you know of relaxing the thumb and, and the, you know, your the finger hand. action yeah then it started i started getting other overuse injuries in the upper bicep and the shoulder oh gosh and so i had yeah. to take again more time off and think yeah. about like this instrument that's causing me so many problems in my li- seemingly you know problems mm-hmm. in life and yeah eventually like i learned to better manage it in my time off with physical therapy and when coming back and starting slowly and being very careful with my teachers i finished with i also study with Jeffrey Irvine so I had good access to all the teachers at CIM Mm -hmm. a lot of them at least and was able to be able to manage the viola and a lot of it was I think mental as well because I think that's where tension that's where it starts
1: originates yeah and
0: so I started doing a little bit of mental unclenching and eventually that helped I think with the muscles I still have to be careful and need to ice every once in a while but I was still like managing my pain when I graduated from CIM and again I was like well what do I do with music I decided to move to Montreal because it was a city that I had visited before and was so obsessed with. And there was this teacher here, Andre, who I had met when I was at Colburn. So I ended up doing a few diplomas here and now I'm doing a doctorate. So now that I'm at this point in my life, I could say that I I think I'm more, let's call it excited or I feel more purpose being in school than I have in my previous conservatories that just seemed to, there just seemed to always be, I don't know what it was. I think it was also growing pains within Mm -hmm. myself. And now that I am pursuing a doctorate and doing research and things that I've find important while being a freelance violist and working and performing and maybe teaching one day and whatever else may come in the future that's essentially how I ended up to where I am now and happened to be at the let's call this the tail end hopefully of the pandemic yeah let's hope
1: yeah I mean as you were speaking about your early stages of taking lessons it made me think lawyers and doctors do pro bono work and that's because they're paid enough in their own normal salary to Mm -hmm. or it's even required of I think the firm or whatever Mm -hmm. to have and i just think if there was any way that that could be systemized with music teachers Mm -hmm. or even university teachers have to do some pro bono work with some Mm -hmm. students or Mm. whatever the case may be like wouldn't that provide so many more opportunities for like people like you who Mm -hmm. didn't have the financial Mm -hmm. access to it wouldn't have been possible yeah
0: it would not have been possible
1: yeah and like look at where you are now pursuing a doctoral degree like that's just fantastic i mean that's not easy to accomplish and also proves so much work on your end and so much talent and all the things but it's also that entry door why is it so blocked is, yes you know why, why and i it? guess we can talk about this for sure in part two because i know that's what we will be talking about mm-hmm. but it just made me think like why don't we have pro bono options like why is it not financially stable for music teachers to have a pro bono opportunity yeah
0: sense. yeah i mean yeah this is something that either one of us could pursue another doctorate and you know i i Actually, my research will hopefully address a slice of that problem. Sure. A sliver yeah. even, you know, and I mean, that's the hope, but it is a problem. And I've started thinking a lot about classical music. And, you know, we have these stars mm-hmm. and there's all this glamour around it and the stars within the classical community. And we have accepted or normalized that the best will float to the top. The best right. are who ex- who succeeds. Whatever the, the best means. We we haven't even... It, how can you define that? Define that. Um yeah. I mean, competitions, even then, that gets dicey. But like, best, what does that mean? And who gets to be the best? Is it to people who are most talented? You know, and my personal thought is not always. Generally, it's an important part, you know, to have, have a natural aptitude for something and willingness to learn. But there are some people who never even get to see the door, let alone get close to the entryway into classical music, to studying it. And why is that there... I I mean, it's such a complex question. Oh, I know. But I mean, I'm with you in that I think there's this myth of meritocracy in classical music. Those who deserve to do it and who are naturally the best and talented, those are the ones who will succeed. But I mean, there's there's so many things before a student even picks up an instrument that will prevent many, many children from ever seeing or experiencing classical music. Not everyone needs to have a classical music education if they don't want it. But I'm of the belief that true privilege is having options and knowing that you have options. Options. Mm-hmm. And that's not the universal case. And it doesn't I seem agree. like there's enough work to address that or even acknowledge it. <laughs> no,
1: yeah. I'm just I that's why I find your story so inspiring is that despite the odds, you were able to find that door and also question it a couple times along mm-hmm. your career path, right? Yeah. I also want to say that there's also a stigma in our student life of if you're not doing the next thing immediately following your graduation, the next festival, the next competition, the next mm-hmm. blah blah blah. It it's looked upon as like, oh, you're lost. Oh, you're not going to make it because, mm-hmm. oh, you're taking time off? Why? Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, I think that that's such a silly judge of someone's success Ex- yeah, or exactly. whatever or it's... where the placement in your career, because there's... it's actually, I find a healthier way of self assessing, mm-hmm. like, what do you need in your life mm-hmm. rather than forgetting about yourself and going forward and pushing through.
0: Mm-hmm. But essentially what we're, I mean, we're both saying that there's, there's a lot of tunnel vision in this. Field. Yes. In many ways, access to education, but also just in terms of viewing, like what is success. And there's just this image that if you're not doing competitions and getting commissioned for like solo recitals or not winning a job in a major orchestra, that you don't have a place in the industry and that you can't contribute to the industry or to society if you don't have those things. And I think that's just something that's accepted and generally believed. And it's
1: so false. It's so false
0: yeah. and, and unfair. And I think it yeah. deters and harms a lot of people. Musicians, so because I've had my particular experience and upbringing, that's in a lot of ways, I guess, unusual. i It was just what I knew, so I, di- I didn't really think it was un- unusual until I found out that it was. I guess you know, mm. it's it's because of that that's one of the main reasons why I'm pursuing a doctorate and trying to address mm. these kinds of issues and it's inequalities. Abdent- exactly, and one of the things about the pandemic is that I've been able to think a lot about these things and what is my artistic contribution? What is my contribution, not just as a musician, but as a human? Yeah, mm. pandemic has has forever changed. I I think a lot of people who most people I guess and certainly the classical music industry but just our way of thinking and, and functioning as, as a society so I'm glad that I we ha- we're not lining. out of it but yeah I am going forward now even after a year and a half of all these restrictions and not knowing a lot of things that I do see a way forward and trying to pursue that right now until you know until maybe I'll be lost again
1: and that's okay if that happens but yeah, yeah. do you have any upcoming events that you are looking forward to
0: yes well actually so it was a really productive summer for me so i enrolled in full-time french classes so if you want to learn how to say bonjour correctly <laughs> let me know uh, I, I i still don't know <laughs> it's <laughs> no, but I, I, I have been studying French, which is part of my research, which I think we'll get to talk about in the next yes, segment. in part two. And I have been, as I said, taking, taking hikes and also applying to grants. Actually, I've had a fair amount of freelance chamber work throughout the summer as well, which makes me feel really good. I'm seeing that performances are coming up, and that's really exciting for a lot of reasons. But also, going back to the grants, I won several. Among one of them is which is called the Silva Gelber. It's from the Silva Gelber Foundation, which is for Canadian musicians and so they fund a, a small number of canadian students and musicians and so they are going to i mean help me out with living expenses but they're also going to fund a few trips to europe for me to do some study independent study with teachers and also competitions and that is so exciting to finally be able to leave canada because i've been here the whole time i haven't had the opportunity to go back and see my brother and my mom in seattle wow. so yeah i'm excited for musical reasons and you know my first trip out of canada is just another marker another pillar so you know have this performance with Kim Kashkashian marked by you know some trips to Europe if it's strange to think of time that way but that's just how my brain is thinking about it and I'm I'm really excited to have that be a new pillar moment Mm -hmm. in my life and my career
1: yeah and congratulations by the way for winning that Mm -hmm. I mean grants are so difficult also to not only write for but also to win yes and so that's incredible and I'm looking forward to what your new perspectives fresh perspectives that you gained from Um. all your your travels and of course seeing your family is highly important as well
0: yeah thank you
1: is this a good time to take a break
0: i think so yeah
1: okay we'll be right back (laughs) welcome back from the break. So Justin, tell me all about your doctoral work, which is super interesting. It's about the intersections of language and music learning, contributions of American indigenous peoples in Western classical music, and the increased access of classical music education, which we touched on in part one. Mm -hmm. But can you elaborate?
0: Yeah, well, so I mean I am just now starting my doctorate, and I Mm -hmm. did some preliminary research to choose my topics that I'm going to be starting over the next few years and hopefully applying after I graduate. But it was during the pandemic when I was finishing up my masters that I had a lot of time to think about first of all my, my own role as a musician in the world today I think a lot of performing musicians felt the same you know whether they had stable employment beforehand and throughout or not the pandemic had changed so much and I don't know that I that I chose these topics because of the pandemic but I'm not saying that I wouldn't have done this regardless right. but there was a lot that helped me quickly you know realize all of the what I wanted to do it's, it sort of boiled down in my brain thinking so much and also worrying so much um, Mm -hmm. about what what does classical music need what do I have to give in in my current situation where I am I'm in in Montreal like how can I use all of the resources that I have to hopefully work towards making a difference in the future so anyway to reiterate and reintroduce my research the first topic as you mentioned is integrating language learning and musical learning and that's a really broad topic there are a lot of subtopics that go into that I mean I could spend many lifetimes studying this but there there hasn't there has not and I don't think so much research regarding this. I mean, for example, like I'm learning French right now because I'm in Montreal and I need it for work. And I've enjoyed, you know, I love languages.
1: How many do you speak right now? Other than outside of, I guess, French is one.
0: So English is my first language. And then my grandmother spoke Spanish. Growing up, I like learned and studied Spanish a bit. So I I have some, although I I rarely use it. So I can't say I'm fluent at the moment. I work every now and then to keep it up, you know, reading Pablo Neruda. Mm -hmm. poetry and watching Netflix (laughs) and other languages and so French you know has become a larger part of my life since I moved to Montreal which is a very bilingual city and you don't necessarily need to speak French to get around here like in many places in the world you can get around speaking English Mm -hmm. but I mean I felt like there was first of all I would be able to have more work opportunities being more fluent more proficient in French and just have access to more connecting you know like communicating with people it opens doors and I think would enrich my life to be able to speak multiple languages so yeah, English and then some Spanish and French, and you know sometimes like, in the heat of it it gets difficult because they both have a Latin root. Yeah. But I mean they're di- they're distinct, but there's a lot of overlap I've found in learning these languages and racking my brain. And actually this summer I had been taking full-time French courses, so morning until the afternoon speaking French, and it has helped me immensely. Still not perfect, still not great, still want to get better, as always. So as far as language and musical learning, some preliminary questions, you know, that I asked myself is like, does learning language just like when we were learning our instruments and learning to read and hear pitch and rhythm you know is there a way that they could complement one another are
1: there links in other ways are there links
0: yeah between language and and music and i without having done years of research at this point i feel that there is there are links and so i mean just to give a few examples one of the things that i would be looking at on the micro level would be cue words which is used a lot in sports psychology and i know that a lot of musicians taking orchestral auditions will use use this to it's like picking one maybe two words and writing it at the, at the top of your page your excerpt your concerto you know just mm-hmm. one word that will help you get in the zone that will focus all of your attention in a productive way so that you're not mm-hmm. thinking of other things and you're also not over analyzing you're just almost creating in the moment but really you're just as fluidly as possible reproducing the skills that you had practiced and so keywords, how could changing up the language of keywords affect your performance mm-hmm. especially if you're bilingual or if you're learning a language Does your secondary language using emotional or technical keywords, how could that help? Or hinder, you know, what are some things to avoid? Is equal important? And then on the macro level, using bilinguality, like the bilingual brain, there's been a lot of studies on the benefits of speaking multiple languages. And you know, to give another example, I did some public speaking in French recently for a performance, and I had written out a script and still had trouble making the French script Feel natural. I found it also to be sort of like preparing for performance, public mm-hmm. speaking in a way, especially in a different language. And so I found myself taking, you know, you probably learned either early on or, or later in your musical education to use rhythms in technical passages, for example, mm-hmm. to change the rhythms yeah, you know, so in a patterned way.
1: Let me just yeah. briefly explain to maybe some folks who don't know sure. what we do. So if we have a straight rhythm, like four sixteenth notes, maybe like da-da-da-da, something like that, mm-hmm. we will add rhythms to it like da-da. Da, da or then da 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 right so we do the opposite right. so that then we can even out those 16th notes and make it really fluent in our fingers just right. so that people might understand yeah, yeah exactly
0: i mean I, let's take twinkle twinkle for example whatever key twinkle twinkle little star you know if, let's say that was hard for beginning string student to create that set of pitches they could make it more difficult for themselves in the moment practicing it like twinkle twinkle to start. and that chunks it in your brain differently so that in the end you have a greater ease when you play it as written so that's one of the tricks of the brain that's just how it works in chunking information and so you know i use that actually speaking let's say i didn't speak english and i was going to introduce myself to you hi my name is justin and i'm practicing in french i would say hi my name is justin And I found that helped a lot when I got up there to speak in a different language. I felt like I had more control in the end than I I wasn't tripping as much over. And I do this even in English as a native speaker. You know, when formulating thoughts, you sort of sometimes trip over your words a bit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you can minimize that because public speaking a lot of times is like a performance and often is prepared. Not always, but I find myself giving more (laughs) successful speeches in in public, having rehearsed a bit at least.
1: Yeah. And it takes practice. I think that's part of what you're getting. I was trying to understand or like make the connection of like, what is it about the rhythms that helped you both in music and in speech? Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems like you're finding the space in between each syllable or each note Mm -hmm. rather than, as you're saying, rambling over and kind of tripping over things. Mm -hmm. So it's that's what you're practicing in your brain in both music and in language, which I think is really cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, also what goes into this is I have read several books on performance psychology and, you know, a really fascinating book is Daniel Coyle's The Talent Code and he talks a lot about talent being the ability I'm not quoting directly because I don't have the text in right. front of me but essentially it's the ability to recreate a set of skills at a high level mm-hmm. something along those lines and so it's it takes obviously repetition but you know it has to be intelligent repetition like if we're just yeah, doing right. a, one of the things that we learn early on is not to practice difficult passages repeatedly and keep you know messing up because it ingrains you know the sloppiness and yeah and the lack of organization yeah. imprecision and you can minimize that by you know using these rhythms to create small cells of information in your brain that later you can link more easily and more fluidly Mm -hmm. into one seemingly seamless performance. Although that's ultimately the goal, at least as far as modern performance standards, is to have it be effortless and seamless and communicative on stage and natural. But there's a lot that goes speaking as well. There's a lot that goes into a performance like that. Let's say a really great performance. It's not just talent and from the heart. There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that maybe audience members wouldn't know about or wouldn't think about. Mm -hmm right
1: well it's the illusion so like when we perform on stage it seems like we're doing magic because it's slipping out of our fingers or our voices or instruments or whatever you want to say but Mm -hmm. what's actually happening the reality is all the preparation up until then I feel like when I was a kid I used to feel like I was a magician being a musician (laughs) Mm -hmm. like I remember feeling when my dad first called me a musician when I first started playing I was just like what I'm a musician now like Mm -hmm. it's like I'm I'm magical or something you know but yeah anyway I just wanted to say it. it is slightly the Illusion that we are so talented and that we're born this way. No, we're not at all. Mm -hmm. We had to work really hard. Mm -hmm. So you're mentioning how music was influencing your learning patterns for French. How has your linguistics Mm -hmm. studies helped your music?
0: I had already been using it a bit without realizing what it was. For example, I got in practicing to learn and practice excerpts when I was at the Cleveland Institute from one of my teachers there, Lynn Ramsey, who taught me this method, which I believe comes from Dorothy Delay, who was one of the most famous. String pedagogues ever yep. and Masters, taught. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Who taught everyone from Midori to Isaac Perlman, Sarah Chang, etc, yep. etc. Et so one of her techniques was to verbalize a motion. For example, let's narrow it down to string crossings, shift. And maybe we can explain a bit what those are for those who don't play. So string crossing, shift, and a slur. And so you have these things. Let's take a, a bar of imaginary music. You have all of these things. So as you're playing, and as you're about to make that action, as you're crossing strings, as you play the note that you've crossed over, you say cross, and you're doing this all slowly so that your brain can understand what's happening. And as you're shifting, you say shift. And so you do this all as you're playing the music slowly, and you verbalize it so that it's very clear in your mind what you're doing because oftentimes we sort of go on i mean autopilot but we we sort of know what a shift is and sort of know what a string crossing is but to have them in rapid fire like the neurons firing and connecting and doing everything that it needs to do in order for our body to replicate what's on the page that's a technique that i had used i know also at cim there was a lot of string quartet from the cavani school i guess of like singing together like the rhythms in in a quartet because that's what your voice is that's foreign to your body because we've used it since we were infants essentially babies you know to cry and whereas we take on these instruments and we try to naturalize them but they're not never going to be as natural as as our voice and as our voice is closer to our brain so just to make sure that we you know are aligned in our thinking as a quartet it helps to count together in the character of a piece and so these are examples of like how i used language to influence my performances and my practice without even really thinking about what I was doing Mm -hmm. and I wanted to explore that and see how far I could go with that because I think there a lot can be learned and applied especially here in Montreal.
1: Have different languages like has French specifically it's grammar or Spanish the way things are pronounced has that influenced inflections in your music?
0: I mean that's that is a good question and I think that's one that that's a question that could be investigated in research so I don't know. I haven't really thought about that, but I have played a number of Spanish songs And another thing is playing songs on the viola because I find the viola often to be like pretty vocal It's a certain vocal range and like I said in the previous half a lot of my musical heroes are vocalists So I mean like taking for example a Ginastera song or a Defaya song which are written in Spanish Of course you need to try to replicate the vowels and the articulation in that language when you perform as best that you can Because that's what the composer had in mind when they're writing it so in a general sense i haven't started looking into that i think that's a great Mm -hmm. question and i think a lot could be learned from that i will Mm -hmm. say that when you try to communicate in different languages and maybe it's because i wasn't fluent from a young age in multiple languages so i have you know i definitely have my one native language and then other foreign languages but i do find that you know in trying to communicate in spanish or french that there's different personas to each Mm -hmm. language even as a non-musician i would love to to spend another lifetime thinking about, like, how does speaking certain different languages affect what happens in your brain? Does it affect much? Does it affect certain Mm -hmm. ways, innate, instinctual ways of thinking and behaving? I don't know. But I will say that languages are fascinating, and just studying any chunk of one language, one dialect, you could learn so much. And so, yeah, I mean, in a way, I don't know how to answer your question, at least not yet. Well, that's all right. No, I
1: mean, that's where there's always room for more discovery. But I also should say, I bet a lot of authors... Opera singers would know how that influences I, I think their so. yeah. I mean, I feel like that's the most closest connection because they're literally speaking the language and they're trying to sing and inflect mm-hmm. tone and pitch and rhythm. So maybe that's the avenue to discover and to go down is to ask all these opera singers
0: about it. I should really take note. I, I think these are great questions, and you know, I'm going to write these down myself because I okay. think that these, <laughs> I didn't these are even valuable. You, <laughs> no, no, no. It's I, I love having insights about these things. So all that to yeah. say learning music, learning language. There's a lot that goes into it. It can be stressful, teaching and student. But anyway, if I can move along a bit about
1: no, no, I was gonna say, can we pivot to your secondary topic?
0: Let's yes, let's let's yes, do that. So one of my other secondary topics is trying to increase access to music education through performance outreach and pedagogy and different ways of bringing music education other than private lessons or conservatory system. I mean, one great example I think of is El Sistema. I know it's become a worldwide phenomenon, I guess, in terms of trying to educate people on different instruments in an accessible way. So to also sort of link it to language, one thing that I have in mind here, especially in Quebec and up north, you know, there's a large Inuit population. And so, you know, I'd come across these really fascinating works. There's some by Derek Shark, but also some by a string quartet written for the Kronos Quartet by Inuit throat singer Tanya Tagach. And if you don't know what Inuit throat singing, I wish I could play an example of this, but it's really fascinating. And it's just sort of a, ge- a vocal game that traditionally women, Inuit women, would play with each other the past time. So they wrote these pieces for Shin Quartet, imitating the sounds, uh, the very, very unique sounds of Inuit throat singing for Shing Quartet. And with this topic, there's a great need to understand if I wanted to go into a community up North, you know, and sort of share this music, I would need to understand enough about the culture to do it respectfully and to not have it be like cultural stealing you know as Mm -hmm. stealing from a culture and appropriating it for classical music's benefit you know there has to be some exchange because the indigenous people of America have historically just faced so much either eradication of culture or appropriating and and misunderstanding of the culture and the people and what their beliefs and, and needs and what they are and so anyway to go back to music and like for example well there's two separate things one is with the pedagogy with the pedagogical methods is to, how can I use my music, my instrument, which is a string quartet instrument or an orchestral instrument, how can I use that to invite, to to welcome other cultures with my music? And, you know, like, maybe I could start something like El Sisema up there. I don't know if that would be the appropriate way to go. If I did, I would also want to, using this idea of language and music, how about developing a pitch and rhythm notation system using Inuit syllables so that it can be taught. And if the education community is up north if they deem it to be something that could be of use in their education system to teach sort of western notation but with owning it with their own language system you know so that's another way of using language but also incorporating it with like um, outreach performance outreach I
1: mean that sounds like Bartok a little bit to me a, a bit yes there's mm-hmm. there's
0: some overlap with what he was trying to do and he was really I guess sort of the first ethnomusicologist ethnomusicologist and Dvorak tried to be he wasn't quite yeah but <laughs> he did have some very brief, but very rich, it seems contact with African American culture when he was here, mm-hmm. spirituals for example, and he did have interaction with Native American cultures in, I believe it was Iowa mm-hmm. Spillville, yeah, Spillville, where he wrote or at least started to write his American quartet and quintet mm-hmm. You know, and he infused an impression essentially of the music that he saw in America, and, he, and it was his belief that Native American music and African American music, music mm-hmm. jazz and spirituals, and there was a rich history there that he wanted to pay homage to and thought that 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 could be the real American music that was the center of American music so yeah I mean I th- an important question to ask when trying to initiate sort of a musical dialogue between cultures is I think there needs to be a, a really acute awareness especially on a more privileged culture one that has more presence in the world and and power in the world like I would say anglophones english-speaking people of the world have a lot of privilege in a lot of ways across the globe and you know, you- Exposure, yeah. exposure and you know whether that's good or bad it's there are a lot of opinions about that but it happens to be true that a lot of the most powerful countries and media and access and exposure to information comes from the anglophone world which isn't to, you know it's not to put that put it at the top as the best but it's it's important to realize these power dynamics between cultures before we get into trouble trying to initiate something which would you know i would i would do it hopefully to benefit both sides and to include both sides equally but i mean it, there has been some resistance in northern communities, Northern Indigenous and Inuit communities, when Canadian governments have tried to intervene or offer their own suggestions. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't know if you've been keeping up with what's ha- been happening with the residential schools and, and the graveyards that have been being discovered all across Canada. So, I mean, there, I think there's plenty of logical and historical reason for these communities to be suspicious of others, of people of course, coming into the communities. Yeah. And I think that's something that I would need to be aware of, especially if I was bringing other Even as someone who has Indigenous blood, Indigenous culture, I don't think that that would give me a free pass. When I traveled abroad, I when I started realizing, like to Europe, for example, or as I said, Istanbul, I never realized how American I was, even though I had never really thought of myself as Western American by nature, by upbringing, by appearance. But here we are. Mm-hmm. So that's one example of a way that I could use pedagogy, or ways that maybe classical music pedagogy could be tweaked or have a second look at. Before. Because as with ethnomusicology and, and music theory, there's I love that there are discussions going on about like Schenkerian analysis being, some say racist, but it, it can be culturally insensitive and Eurocentric. You can't apply it to all musics across the world.
1: Briefly, Shankarian analysis is kind of an older version of theory analysis of a piece of music where you're trying to ascend to the macro scale of what the composer was trying to do. So usually it's harmonic based where you start in your home Home key, you travel somewhere to your five key, or your the most distant key, and then somehow you go back. Anyway, it's just, but there's a set of rules, and there's it's kind of complex. And Mm -hmm. as you say, it's not applicable to all music. Mm -hmm. But Shankarian analysis implies that only good music is under this umbrella of rules.
0: Exactly. If there had been a distinction as to like only good music of Western, you know, Western classical music, even then, I'm sure there there could be dicey.
1: Yeah, it's very, I think more conservatories are starting to eliminate the teaching of Shinkarian analysis. Although I learned it at the very tail end of my studies. Right. Yeah, very poorly.
0: Right, and I I actually want to use this point, this just point of discussion that we're having right now about the need for cross-cultural understanding if cultures are to engage with one another in in one way or another, uh, whether it be through music or anything else, to introduce what would be my last topic, which is contributions of Indigenous American people, so North and South America, to classical music over time. And this mm-hmm. goes quite far back to the time of the 1500s when colonization was well underway at that point. And it's such a shame that that we don't learn in our education, or at least I hadn't mm-hmm. in my conservatory. I serv- hadn't either. Until, servitori- yeah. yeah, it is that these contributions do go back and they were stolen. For example, Bakshakon, possibly one of the most famous solo string works ever in the classical repertoire.
1: And it's also a beautiful piece. I mean, I it, to, we all have it to is, like, yes. admit if, that. Yeah, but <laughs> there's a lot it of
0: is- Intelligent structure and, and Bach did a lot of great work with that piece but it wouldn't have been possible like that form like the pascalia the chaconne, Sarah Bond all of these forms that he and other initially Baroque composers but later even to this day composers draw on these what were dance forms that came from America and so they were observed by some of the Spanish colonists they observed some of the dances that the indigenous people were doing and they were obsessed with it and some sources say that they even looked at some of the movement and, and rhythms that they were hearing from this African slaves that they had brought over and so they were, the slavery system you know, American slavery system and colonization of the Americas, they had irreversible, permanent impacts among them, which music was not an exception they saw these dances and heard these rhythms and, and were just so fascinated and, and obsessed with it, but coming from a European perspective, they looked down on these people as lesser cultures so they, how it was initially interpreted was like in the Caribbean, for example too sexual, it, it was too Primitive, it was too animalistic, and the rhythms were irregular, which was interpreted as not holy, you know. So they were ungodly, wild, perverse dances, but they to their eyes, to their eyes, yes, yeah, to their eyes. Thank you for, for helping me clarify. Um, they were
1: probably awesome dances, I'm, but yeah. <laughs> I want to be there. <laughs> go on
0: those sorry <laughs> um anyway so these dances sort of they made their way they infiltrated the hearts and minds of the colonizers and they brought them back maybe discreetly and maybe they changed a few things but slowly they made their way through the European courts the Spanish the Italian the French and then later the German it, it just spread with of course I would imagine different permutations of what the initial dance themes and, and rhythms were anyway so all that to say the chaconne it was an interesting Genesis an introduction mm-hmm. into the classical music world and it made it also had an irreversible and profound impact on classical music which is not often discovered like I didn't know that until um, I started doing my own research that classical music the reason why I think it can be so problematic for Schenker to say that this is the best music this is how the best music functions well the best music that he was talking about is a product of many other elements taken from other cultures without giving them due acknowledgement and right. we can spend you know the rest of the time that we have but we shouldn't talking about how how, yeah. how blurry the lines really are and geographical borders how much they've changed and how how many languages and cultures have died out and right. morphed and you know music is a human thing it's a human invention and there are many kinds just like language and to say that <laughs> one language is better than the other like most people wouldn't see why that's the problem and wouldn't really buy into that unless you create someone were to create their own set of subjective criteria you know which I think is a lot of ways what has happened in classical music
1: yeah. Thank you for sharing that, because when we go through music school, the first thing we learn in music history is Gregorian chant, which makes sense, because that was existing in the churches in Europe, and that began before colonization, mm-hmm. that began, and that was sort of the beginnings of monophony mm-hmm. and polyphony, right? So mm-hmm. there's a lot to already study counterpoint there. But then when I learned about the saraband or the Chaconne, and by the way, those have a characteristic, at least what we've been taught, mm-hmm. characteristic for... First and second beats are strong. Sometimes the second beat might be stronger than the first beat. So something like one, two, three, something along those lines, maybe. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's very characteristic of all the Pasicalia, Sarabande, and Chaconne. But we study those as regional to Europe, Mm -hmm. but nothing across the seas in any way. So that's where we do need an update in our music history. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because later in history, we do learn, like, okay, when the World Fair happened in the 1920s, Debussy was really influenced by all the Asian sounds and instruments. So, you know, there's a lot of pentatonic scales and blah, 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 or like, you know, there's octatonic. So we do open up that world a little bit when history was allowing for that. Mm -hmm. But we need to go back and rewrite some of that earlier history. So thank you for sharing that with me, because I wasn't even aware of that.
0: And I will add to the point that you just made about Debussy and Britain and your fascination with what they saw what they considered like the Far East and this whole Orientalist movement that's what it was called when they were looking right. at and trying to incorporate Asian music elements and you know music in Asia <laughs> what does that mean? That can mean so many different things mm-hmm. and, and so it's even though there, we did learn about some of the influences that Debussy had and Britain and even Rameau and Vivaldi who wrote operas set in the Americas by the way it's always through the European historical lens which is another important distinction because we're not looking at the full story we're not looking at the complete history we're like you know western classical history is quite let's call it one-sided or eurocentric maybe is a better way of looking at it a lot of influences that were taken from other cultures other continents and i think that it is important because really if to understand the music if that's what our main goal is i think we need to understand it from even more deeply than the composer's perspective but from a worldwide perspective because the composer is where all of this information is being filtered and converged and then we interpret that but there's so much behind that composer just like we're saying there's so much behind a performance that maybe audiences don't know that it's just it would be nice that we could all expand our awareness and you know I would dare say even compassion and, and empathy and I think that's one of the great capabilities that music has and even that I would have to qualify that statement by saying like I guess I was thinking classical western music in my head I had to catch myself because mm-hmm. it's not the only kind of music it's what you and I have largely studied and it's what we know well but it's not it's not the only music. Music and it's not, it's not e- complete. Even yeah. it itself, it, it's not pure and infallible. Like we were sort of brought up to view the, view these composers and the compositions and their ideas as I, I want to say gospel, but maybe there's a more tactful way of saying that. Just law, you know, as, yeah. ideas to be accepted without really thinking critically about where they come from and why we use them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I could pick your brain all day. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the problem with the podcast sometimes. I have to limit the conversation, but mm-hmm. I think this is an amazing entryway for as you say, like what you can bring to classical music or to cross cultures Mm -hmm. as well. I'm so looking forward and fascinated by what you were able to discover in your studies at McGill University. So please keep us in touch with what you discover. I, I
0: would love to. And thanks again so much for having me. You know, we can continue to have conversations about these things because I think it's important to yeah. you know for for me because I want I want to refine and really be able to think objectively and critically about my own research and my own feelings and thoughts. So yeah. yes, Patty, thank Absolutely. you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Can I ask you two final questions? Yes. <laughs> What is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career?
0: I think I would advise myself to get as informed as I could about, and I, I don't know that I could have done anything differently with the research that I had, but sure. just in picking schools and teachers and friends, just to be selective and, and careful about what company I keep, who, the mentors that I choose, colleagues that I work with and interact with. I guess I would just be more mindful about what I want because I think musicians are so connected and there are ways that we can help each other or without knowing it, hold each other back and not making the right choices and who we surround ourselves with because it does affect a lot especially when we're young. Yeah, I, I think I would think less about things that don't seem to matter to me as much like a school reputation or things like that. I guess it was a learning process being able to know myself and what I needed and what I wanted. and But yeah, I mean in order to prevent myself from making detours and I think that a lot of musicians might feel the same way.
1: No one's path is is ever completely straight no too, you know and so i think that's sometimes when we're in school it seems like the path should be straight and if you deviate from that something's
0: wrong with you right, right? that kind of thing exactly yeah. I, I mean that maybe that's a better way of of stating it is that don't be sucked into the one path the vacuum yeah, the vacuum yeah. be open to other ideas
1: great and as we interrupt semi post ish pandemic world whatever we're doing right now <laughs> What elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue? And what would you want to shed?
0: I would like to continue thinking and pursuing other projects outside of being on stage and being off stage and being, being forced to think about all the things that I have. You know, what we just discussed on the show, like I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah, so I, I would want to really just think more broadly and critically. And I think it will inform my music making and my performances as well. And I would also love to continue studying other or looking into other ways of disseminating performances and sharing performances and communicating with audiences because we've done so much with technology and at a distance, I think a lot of that will stay, not without reason. I think there's a lot of convenience and time that could be saved using the tools that we have. And as far as what I would want to shed, being inside, (laughs) being inside. And sometimes I practice, sometimes I didn't have motivation to, but being inside and inside I use that sort of thinking of like a practice room or just like not being active in the world. I'm really looking forward to engaging with other people in person, you know, making music, having discussions, going out and seeing art, being able to see the world and travel and learn and absorb as much as possible. I'm happy that I've had time to sit and think a lot, but I, I want to just... You're itching I'm to itching. Like, I have this yeah. urge, this, this yeah. hunger to go out and do, be a part of the world yeah. in person, not yeah. just online.
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects?
0: Well, I don't have it up yet, but I'm working on on my website hopefully it will be out soon justin amazon viola.com. amazon a l m a z a n uh, all one word or as in canada they say Z. right <laughs> if you feel like following along with some of the projects that i might be doing with my quartet on instagram we are per se quartet one word it's p-e-r-s-e-e quartet. As far as work that I do with my own quartet, in addition to being like a functioning classical string quartet, it would be nice to sort of take it and make a social project out of it, like doing some of what I was talking about and going out into different communities and communicating openly and culturally sensitively. I think the classical music world can benefit from more reaching out and welcoming. Mm-hmm. I wish that there was more of a revolving door way of thinking in classical music world, you know, because I, I in a lot of ways it is very exclusive. I would love to reach out and, and talk to other people that you have on the show as well some of whom i i know and i, I look forward to hearing some of your podcasts and, and tuning in, in in the future so oh
1: thank you all right and if, and if you enjoyed, enjoyed listening be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast leave a review on apple Podcasts while you're at it it doesn't need to be long your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms and you'll make sushi's day and it's free make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well if you want to level up you can always become part of the hide and behind the music stand family by do Donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreoncom stand. Our social media handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at Hayden Music Stand, and we'd love to hear from you at our email, at gmail.com. Didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode? No worries. There's a Spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience. The link is in the description of each episode. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing such invaluable insights on classical music mm-hmm. and its influences in all cultures i sincerely wish you the best of luck and everything to dive deeper and discover more and teach us what we need to know going forward
0: yes thank you so much for having me and i, I, mean, I mean i hardly feel like a teacher because there's so much to learn and so anyway sure. thank, you know thank you for having me
1: absolutely and thanks for listening say bye sushi
0: Um, okay go ahead
1: oh no I'm just gonna
0: <laughs> you're gonna let me <laughs>
1: yeah I was gonna let you yeah do you want to yeah, yeah go first. this it. is
0: a very Canadian you know conversation <laughs> like no you go no you go or Minnesotan um, as Minnesota, well yeah okay. well you're you're quite close so I mean, exactly yeah <laughs> in geography yes um c-u-a-r-t-e-t so yes oh uh, that that's spelling <laughs> yes which is French for Perseus uh-huh. um
1: oh I meant quartet oh quartet. spelling. yeah, yeah. So spelling for quartet is not with a Q; it's with CU.
0: Did I say CU? Yeah, you did. No, that's—that's that's not what it meant. <laughs> <gasps> Should we redo this? I was this? like, I mean, that's people do that, though, you know. Oh, so. um, sh- let me <laughs> do it again. That's fine. <laughs> okay.